Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is the podcast all about slow living in a fast-paced world. My name is Brooke McCallery. And my name is Ben McCallery and welcome to a bonus episode. We are coming into your RSS feed. How gross. How gross. That's a gross <laughs> word. We're coming into your podcast feed uh, momentarily and it's not on a Thursday. This it's is not. a mega bonus episode for season four. It is. For, you were presented an opportunity that was too good to refuse. Exactly. It was literally too good to refuse. So in today's episode, I chat with the utterly delightful Claire Bowditch. And I have spoken with Claire on the radio a couple of times. She used to host a show on ABC in Melbourne. and Australia. I, Australia. I've always loved her approach to the world. I love her music. I love her voice. Uh, and anyway, this opportunity literally popped into my inbox a couple of weeks ago and I didn't want to say no because I've always wanted the chance to, to have a more in-depth chat with her. And that's what this is today. Absolutely. So this is an OG conversation, not in the format for season four. Correct, yes. This is just a special uh, one-off for, uh, yeah, your listeners to enjoy. It is. And I really, I really hope you do enjoy it because it's a different kind of conversation to anything I've had before, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, Claire is such a beautiful conversationalist. She kind of threw me for a loop from the get-go. And I found myself thinking about this conversation like a lot. When two conversationalists come together. Yeah. She's had a big impact on me in a way that mm. I can't quite yet articulate. And I think that was partly this conversation and also partly the book of hers that I have literally just finished reading. So the book's out now. Yes, it is out now. And it's called? It's called Your Own Kind of Girl, the stories we tell ourselves and what happens when we believe them. And there's just so much in this book that I think that listeners of the show will resonate with. It is not, even though Claire is a very accomplished rock star. Literally she, rock yeah, star. literally a rock star. Mm. She, uh, this book is not about that. This book is about kind of the first half of her life probably. And So is it a memoir? It is a memoir, mm-hmm. yeah, but um, unlike any that I've ever read. Mm. I cried many times reading this book. It really it really shook me in a very good way, and I think it's shaken something loose in me that I'll probably talk about at some point later. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've seen me since I've had this conversation since I read the book. Absolutely. It's been maybe a week since you've had that conversation, and you're different. Yeah, I think I am. I, I really do hope you enjoy this conversation. Though. What I will say, two things. Firstly, if you listen with kids in the car or when you're cleaning or, you know, doing whatever you do, there is a bit of adult language in this one. So that's just a heads up. And also, if you have struggled with mental health issues over the years or are struggling now, we do go into quite a bit of that. Um, and I think it's still worth listen, but I just want you to understand that you might need to take a pause or stop if it feels like it's, you know, getting too too much for you. And I, I could completely understand why that would be the case. Yeah, absolutely. It's still a very, very, very well worthwhile episode to listen to. And head over to slowyourhome.com slash season four for the show notes for this epo. Poggy epo. Wow. Yeah. Australia. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we hope you enjoy the conversation. Absolutely. Claire, hello. How are you? Hello, Brooke. I'm a bit overexcited because today I get to be on one of my favourite podcasts. What one's that? 
Uh, it's about slowing your world and your life. It's called the Slow Home Podcast. And my sister, I love this, my sister sent it to me, my sister Anna. She goes, I found this amazing podcast. You know, she goes, it's blah, 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 and they live in Sydney. She told me everything about you. I'm like, do you mean Brooke? I've been on that one for a bit. I got the book in my hand. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> I don't feel worthy. I'm a bit too pacey to be on it today, but I'll do my best, I promise. It's all good. I'm with you 100%, two coffees in. <laughs> Let's get into it. I saw you speak at ProBlogger way back in 2013. Amazing. Yeah. And I've got to tell you, I feel like this is an important place to begin our chat because I saw you up on that stage and you were so fearless and so confident and so warm and talented and just delightful. Oh, come on. No, you were. Oh. You, like, you actually truly were. <laughs> I remember being struck with a combination of a delight at just at seeing someone who was you so aligned. Me. <laughs> you hated me. And that was the other side. I was so <laughs> envious of you. I really was. It's, it's perfect. It's always so interesting, envy, isn't it? It is. I, I have it all the time. To like to see someone who who looked, and this is absolutely never the case, but looked so sorted, you know, and I, I, there was I telling myself how crap I was at everything and how I didn't even deserve to be sitting in the audience at this event and blah, 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 blah. Oh, I feel like you, you, you know what, you can pick up what I'm putting down there. And I could put it right back at you because I remember myself, if you don't mind, I'll just butt in for Please a sec. Do. I remember s- sitting in the studio at ABC Radio Melbourne, the second year of my beautiful afternoon show there, and I loved my listeners and I loved my interviewees. And I remember... I got the pleasure of interviewing you. This was only three years ago, Mm -hmm. two years ago. And it was a real watershed for me because I realised that I was desperately, and we've never chatted about this, dear listener. This is the the first time we've chatted about this at all. But I had your book in my hand, Slow, Live Life Simply, and I thought, fucking hell, you know, that's what I want. That's what I want to be doing. But I'm creating 26, you know, unique pieces of radio a week with my single producer team and my life is in chaos, you know. And it was one of the things that – one of the interviews that I really took with me to say, hang on, I can stay here on radio and I have loved the privilege of it, but I'm not done with my own projects yet. I still have a bread to bake for God's sake, you know. Wow, mm-hmm. that's that's wonderful. I mean, it's wonderful to hear that I made you quit <laughs> radio. It's had a bubble in a way in there. Wow. Oh, you and R- Rhonda Hetzel and Erin mm. Rhodes. I, I love Rhonda and Erin. They're yeah. both awesome. Me too. That's a top Great. group of women to be <laughs> to be included in. Well, thank you. That's actually sort of thrown me for a complete loop because um, I remember that interview Talk very more clearly. About we had to get off. We had to get off the radio too quickly. I'm like, but I'm saying to my producer, but I've got more questions. And she's like, round it up, round it up. Time <laughs> to move on. <laughs> Oh, well, I mean, this is kind of an interesting little segue into um, your book, but I remember walking away from that interview going, that wasn't very good. She hated me because in my mind I had like this this vision of us, you know, hitting it off so beautifully that you'd be like, hey, like let's let's be friends and we can go and hang out and have a coffee and whatever. I mean, I know I've done radio plenty of times before and I know it's like bang, 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 you've got to get through it. Yeah, and I said to Ben on the train on the way home, like, oh, yeah, it was it was fine. I mean, she was lovely, but I don't feel like I really brought it, you know. 
<laughs> he's like, I'm sure it was fine. Oh. He was right because I really, really enjoyed it. And I, I went home and said to Marty, Marty. Uh, so my, my beautiful husband, he's the kind of guy who he's always, he always bottles his own olives, yet he somehow finds time to, you know, do all the nuts and bolts. So he manages everything. He's our, he's my um, producer. He's my manager. And he's really cerebral, but he's able to have a pace that's, and, you know, it's like cooking passata and all of that kind of stuff. And so he's my hero in that way. And, you know, I think sometimes we do need that sounding board. It sounds like, I mean, if you were at the pro blogger event, you were probably building a business and feeling ambitious and, mm-hmm. you know, wondering what you were going to do with all these feelings inside yourselves and, and, and the feeling of wanting to do something with your life. Where did it, where did you head from there? Um, I mean, I think I had been writing for a while then, but that event actually kicked me off into a different sort of gear, I think. So I remember you asked everyone to write down what they wanted to be when they were a kid um, in their notebooks. And I wrote that I wanted to be a writer. And at that point, I mean, yes, I was writing, but at that point, the idea of publishing a book or even having a podcast, like that was not on the horizon at all. And I hadn't really put it together in the timeline until today when I was thinking about our chat. The end of that year, Ben and I and the kids went to Canada for a trip that we had been planning for years and we were, it was just the most exciting thing. And it was actually on that on that trip that I picked up the book, you know, Tiny Things to Write About and actually was prompted to write my eulogy. And I feel like you were an integral part of right. that conversation with myself about what do you want your life to stand for and, you know, that legacy question that I feel like, you know, the, the eulogy was all about. And from there, I mean everything changed, like everything. And yeah, I think from the moment that I wrote that eulogy and and then asked myself, like, are you living a life right now that that will result in your kids saying that about you? And the answer was no. (laughs) That was where it all sort of shifted. Um, So you, you, I think you did something very, well, anyone who's read the book Slow, which I, is one of my favourite books, um, Sometimes you can pick up a book like Slow and just have a little read. That's what I do when things are too busy and I think, oh, one day I'm going to slow down. <laughs> but um, one of the things I love about it is you're a living example of having actually done it and you speak about it. You're not from the mountaintop. You speak about the process of it and the attempt to sort of do it all at once and how that didn't really work. Um, but this this longing and this yearning is in all of us to want to do something meaningful with our lives and want to create a legacy I reckon for a lot of my life, I also had that feeling, but it sat inside me as a restlessness and I wondered, and almost as a guilt that I wasn't doing enough with my life. And, you know, just to launch into it, because I'm terrible at small talk and I, I say this everywhere I go, but, you know, this book, the genesis of writing your own kind of girl or even just of that feeling. I felt always had to do with my sister Rowena's death when I was young and she was two years older than me and I'm one of five all 18 months apart and this is one of the stories that I sort of have told a little bit in my albums What Was Left but I needed to tell it fully because if you're going to write a book, like if you're going to write a memoir about the stories we tell ourselves and what happens when we believe them, I really had to tell my my, my, my most shocking stories and the, one of the most shocking stories I had was based in childhood where I really thought there was something I could have or should have done to save my gorgeous sister and I couldn't. And that feeling of never, didn't matter what I did or how hard I tried, I could never undo this thing 
always fought inside me. You know, it was just this very present, I guess it's love and grief, but it played itself out as a question of, you know, what can I do to make this all better? And it became stories. I mean, it became a multitude mm. of stories, didn't it, for you over the years that your book really kind of digs into. Um, sure did, in yeah. In such a brave way, a courageous way. I got the sense that over time you were able to, obviously you went through significant challenges um, mm-hmm. that you write about in depth and, I, you know, from like shifting that that idea from going from a breakdown to a breakthrough was a really interesting mm-hmm. one to me because I'm curious, I don't know if this is like an appropriate question to ask. Yeah, enough, hit but, me. Um, <laughs> like everything that you went through as you went through that breakdown resulted in this unraveling of all those stories and yeah. a gradual understanding of them and why they were in place. Yes. Um, would you go back and change it? Yeah, good question. Um, would I go back and change it? Hmm. So to put this into context for anyone who's listening, um, this what I've tried to do with this story is I tell the hardest stories of my life, which is really the first half of my life. Yeah. And then I also speak about the impulse I had in the middle of that darkness to one day get well and one day um, tell story because I, you know, in the hope that it will be useful and other people's stories have been useful to me. So it was, you know, as I say it out loud, it sounds like a cliche, but that was truly this one of the stories that saved me. Mm. And then I, you know, and this book really ends before I had any public profile, um, you know, it ends just as I was releasing my first song. So it's not a classic rock and roll memoir. It's really about the human and internal life and, and how we survive and make meaning and enjoy our lives where is pleasure um and is it right to feel pleasure when so Mm -hmm. so much goes wrong I don't know I think at the time so I was 21 or I was 20 actually going on 21 I went to London to live my amazing life a lot of that in my head I didn't realize at the time was really a story about my weight and my size and I was going to get thin again because I'd been thin and fat and thin and fat all my life since I was 10 I had no idea that my relationship to food and eating had anything to do with my grief and my feeling or my biology or anything I just thought there was something terrible with me that I couldn't stay thin <laughs> and had this piano accordion of a body um and then in London, things really came to a head and I had a full-blown collapse, um, which I didn't realise was effectively a nervous breakthrough. Uh, it was actually a breakdown, but my therapist kept insisting I call it a breakthrough. And the question you've asked me is, would I go back and change that? It's a really unfair question and I'm sorry. Well, no, I, no, I don't think – I think it's genuine. What I would go back and change – and still to this day in my childhood heart I want to change is I would somehow in the age of magical thinking I would somehow go back and make my sister well and make none of that ever happened I'll give up every anything to be able to do that and that's impossible so this was the the reckoning for me the coming to terms with the trying to find the gold in you know that was my 2021, 20, 22, 23, 24 as I recovered and started putting my music in the world and and asking myself what do I want to do with my, you know, that Mary Oliver quote, one wild and precious life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now I wouldn't change that but at the time I didn't think I'd survive it mm. and that was I guess the horror of it, you know, and to know that I could survive it and that it actually wasn't as complicated as I thought to recover from 
anxiety. I just needed a couple of techniques and a bit of patience and, you know, the belief that I could recover. That to me is I'm really glad I'm still here today to be able to say that and to say that that is my true story. I never had to go back there again. From that moment forward, I started speaking my truth in the world. It hasn't always been pretty. It hasn't always been easy. And there's no other option. So, you know, that brings us to today, which is the privilege of getting to connect with other people with our true stories. Thank you for answering that question because I'm just sitting here berating myself for even asking it. Um, oh, I, th- I think it's an excellent question. Don't you dare berate yourself, my Brooke, because <laughs> you, like me, you have a really strong inner critic because you really give a shit about things. Yeah. So do I. Um, and I, everything I've written in this book, I want to be asked about because I want someone to know, you know, whoever's listening, I want them to know they're not alone. And I think in asking honest questions, we get there. Well, I, I mean, I, I think you're 100% right. I think that so much of like so many of the reasons that we stay small, you know, in ourselves or in our belief in ourselves is because we're afraid of standing out by being honest or, you know, we're terrified yeah. of, of being vulnerable but I actually think that you've you know to kind of hack into Brene Brown's wisdom like you only ever really truly find yourself when you say I don't actually want to fit in yeah and the reason we get to quote Brene as much as we do you know as as a generation is because she was able to articulate something that felt so true to so many of us that we suspect our area of strength is somehow tied in with our pain and our hope. But we didn't, you know, she gave us a kind of almost a clinical framework, a legitimate framework through which to to be able to have the conversation in a way that was made it more broadly understood. Mm. And I think it's helped us push along our understanding or our judgment around not only feelings but also what we like to term mental ill health. Mm-hmm. Um so much of what we currently frame as mental ill health is really just humans, you know, yeah. needing needing to process some feelings, you know. Well, exactly. I mean, you you wrote in your book something that really struck me, which was, I'll paraphrase, but mm-hmm. um, you know, people who who suffer from mental ill health at some point in their lives are often sharing characteristics with people who are also, I guess, qualified as was spoken about as geniuses, you know, and you're like we need to come to a different understanding of how we discuss the suffering that is often mental ill health as well because mm. I think that so much of it is life. It is just life. I mean, there are 100% mental health, you know, crises that people will go through. But I also think that um, I know for me when I have been suffering and cramming it down or not understanding it or thinking it's some kind of failing of me as a human um, mm-hmm. to be feeling this way, it come, it has come out in mental health issues. Yes. Um, so I think that to kind of completely reconfigure the way we talk about pain and suffering and just the, the experience of being human by having these kind of conversations will reduce some of that pressure on people mm. to feel like they've got to have their shit together all the time. It's also inhumane what we ask of ourselves very often. Absolutely. Um, I know this from your story and my story too is we 
if I think back to my 21-year-old self, I'm in London, I'm on my own, I have very little money, I've had a terrible breakup, I've fleed Australia after a really just heartbreak. I am struggling with what is clearly disordered eating and diet mentality but had no framework to understand that. Um, a friend collapses on the tube and mm. I haven't slept and I start having what I now see is just classic panic attacks. At the time I had no idea, no framework. And I start, you know, feeling I'm back in my childhood again. I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm back in trauma again. I have nothing to understand it by. And I'm not sleeping. Then I stop eating because I can't eat. Um, and I speak to my mom and I'm trying to pretend I'm fine. And a guy, I took a guy out of backpackers called Ian and took my friend Libby Chow, my darling friend, to and her mom to get me home on the plane so I could start my recovery. Um, I was asking way too much of myself you know I was way out of my depth and all the while I had a you know feeling I wanted to do something with my life I wanted to sing songs but I was you know it doesn't mean anything it's it's too vain it's too you know I judged myself for what I wanted of course I was going to have a goddamn (laughs) breakdown and thank goodness I did you know um because it was my chance to stop and start start again you know, start rebuilding again with with questions that actually mattered. Find out that I was, at the time I still judged myself for my um, breakdown and B, I wasn't tough enough. I didn't realise that you can define it, you can actually build a life around who you are, particularly now, more than ever, and it's really important that we do. I think showing up and, and asking, you know, those questions is so powerful and so scary you know, because I think that we mm. do a lot to distract ourselves away from those questions. Like I know I have for years and years and years. Thought that if I just, if I just, you know, tick I this still box, miss smoking. Yeah. I loved smoking. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that was so much fun. <laughs> terrible, but you know, just anything I could do to distract myself from, yeah. from the feelings. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You know, you numb it however you can. And for me, it was. I was busy. I just like had to be busy, and I had to be kicking goals and ticking boxes, and then to numb myself from the exhaustion of that, I'd drink a bottle of red wine at night, you know, and it was, and so on and so on and so on. Like it takes that pain of going, oh, this really, really, really isn't working, mm. you know, to, to stop and, and start asking those questions. You, you write in such glowing terms in the book about um, Claire Weeks and oh, I yeah. loved reading about Dr. Claire Weeks, the OG of mindfulness as you, <laughs> as you coined <laughs> Had you heard of her before? I had not. No, I love I'm this. so okay, yeah. I'm so determined to now go and do what you did, which is to read everything she's written. <laughs> because what a phenomenal woman to yeah. to be at the like way out leading the pack on mindfulness mm-hmm. before it was something that people spoke about. So in the nineteen in the oh God nineteen twenties or earlier, there was this woman born, uh, dear listener, called Dr. Claire Weeks. Now Claire was. A woman of many talents, but she she was quite a self determined self determining woman. Unusual for her time in that she was the first woman at the University of Sydney to get a doctorate. Um, she was first, I think, a zoologist. Then, after the or during the war, just after the war, she wanted to become a soprano singer. So she travelled over to Europe on a boat in the forties, and um, she came back and became a GP which again was very unusual at the time. And the incredible thing is she, she started writing these books and one of her books was because uh, she became 
I guess in her hood. I'm going to paraphrase her story here. But the incredible um, journalist Judith Hoare has just written, coincidentally, just written a biography of Dr. Claire Weeks. So it's it's Dr. Weeks' revival time. Um, it's amazing. And she wrote this book called Self-Help for Your Nerves. So a simple, practical technique for recovering from what she called nervous illness. Now we call generalized anxiety or general anxiety disorder. Panic, agoraphobia, PTSD, the mm-hmm. whole shebang. But she called it nervous illness. Weeks. She had quite a cultivated Australian accent, but she was this wonderful character who made audiobooks before they were audiobooks. They were cassettes, and she wrote um, Self-Help for Your Nerves. Now, this book was derided at the time, even though it was a smash hit selling millions of copies because she was able to give um, post-war veterans a technique to manage the symptoms of their anxiety. Um, the psychi- psychiatrist of the era thought she was just a homespun wackadoodle who could go back mm-hmm. to Australia if if she wanted. In the meantime, she had this practical, simple technique um, to explain what the nervous symptom was, to take the fear out of it, to tell people they could actually recover, and quite simply, and then encouraging them to practice this technique. Now, when I had my breakdown, I was at such a low point that I really couldn't read very much at all. I couldn't watch TV. You know, a friend encouraged me to read children's books, which I, I started to, and they were—I found them quite comforting. Like every, you know, I was just spooked all the time. Yeah, I um, loved that piece of advice, by the way. I thought that was just so beautiful. It's beautiful, and I started with Elizabeth Goo. Yeah, if you could apply this technique. Um, you could recover and just to hear that, oh, my gosh, this feeling has a name. This horrible feeling has a name and I can recover. Like that was enough for me. I mm-hmm. I, I started my recovery there. Now, it wasn't an overnight success, but I knew then, ah, so I'm afraid of my feeling of fear. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with me. I'm not, you know, I, my inner critic was telling me I was completely nuts and I didn't deserve to live anymore. It wasn't that. It was just that I was really oversensitized and I needed some time to chill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was it. You know, that that simple technique and, and it was in that moment of relief that I said, right, one day I'm going to write this book and I still needed another couple of decades to work out if my theories were correct. But, that you know, that this technique has seen me through everything that I've done that ever appears to be courageous, including childbirth. This is what I've used, the faffle. Oh, see, it went, uh, and I couldn't help but make it into a falafel um, when yeah. I saw it written down. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but, but it's so, I mean, I, I, it's such a beautiful, simple set of tools that you can pick up anytime. So, you know, for me, the one that really grabbed, I think, was the the let time pass or, or let, let go of impatience. Yes. Because I think for me, definitely, even when I'm trying to, accept things or I'm trying to, uh, you know, be more mindful, be more intentional or, or, or just slow the hell down. Um, impatience is mm-hmm. still the thing that drives so much um, of the stress that I, I put on my shoulders, I think. So I, I love that, that that's, you know, the last kind of point in the, in the faffle tool. Yeah, um, basic set float and let time pass and that 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 last tool too also allowed me to then think of my recovery in terms of decades rather than so I was like I must be well right now instead I went in it allowed me to take on what my friend Fabian would call the gardener's mentality you know just slowly slowly and then I thought okay I'm not going to write that book now because I still 
that there's no way I could have unpicked it then. But I'm going to work on a hunch and when I'm really, really old, let's say 40, I said. (laughs) Ancient. And that's really old. (laughs) uh, I will write this book. And that is, my, my friends, that is what it is. That's it. That and a second technique that helped me was naming this voice in my head that mm-hmm. criticised me and beginning to develop a playful relationship. I named it Frank. I called my inner critic or my, you know, my ancient survival brain, the voice of the uh, blah, 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 you'll never do anything, you're always going to be fine, you're going to be, you know, all of the whinging about all the things that were wrong with me in the world. I just called it Frank and every time it arced up, when, and it would always arc up when I was on to something interesting or exciting, mm. I'd say, fuck off, Frank, and I'd get on with the show. And I still use that. I use that very technique to get through the writing of this book. Really? Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can understand the power of, like, of naming that voice and just sticking it in a box sometimes and saying I'm – like, fine, have your opinion, but I'm yeah. actually over here doing this thing anyway. And we get to be politer. You know, my mum, my mom, I, I, we recorded the audio book recently and I swear quite a bit in the book, as I do in real life. <laughs> my mum uh, kindly offered to do the <laughs> the language warning at the front of the book. <laughs> so, and she has a little Dutch accent and she says, we were very surprised, you know. <laughs> she said it gave a bit of a old shock for the old lady or something like that she's very funny um I don't always need to swear anymore you train your inner critic in a way we learn to tame our inner critic and I'm not I'm aware of that feeling of insecurity or that negative voice rising up sometimes now I can just say oh hi I see you yep got Mm -hmm. it we're going to do it anyway but other times if you know if I'm about to go on stage and present something there's no time for a chat it's just a little toddler who's giving me some you know some lip and I'm like hang on buddy now's not the time fuck off Frank not that I'd say fuck to a toddler often but you know you got to be with this with our own internal dialogues we are allowed to be the boss actually and that for me was a breakthrough absolutely I love it fof fof and faffle fof and faffle Foff and faffle. No need to buy the book now. No need. You've got everything. They've got everything that's that I've got to say that's useful. Except that you do <laughs> need to buy the book because truly <laughs> this is one of the most moving and, and touching um, and honest books I've read in a very long time. I cried multiple times reading it and um, I just want to thank you actually for, for writing it and for doing the work I know is involved in putting stories like that on a page, let alone putting them out into the world. I know you know exactly how, how it rolls. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I did have some friends say that writing a book was quite challenging, but I must say I thought I'd find it easier than I did. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like I said to you before we record, it's a bit like childbirth. <laughs> People will tell you, but you don't necessarily really believe them. <laughs> There's a good degree of delusion in almost all creative endeavour at the start, otherwise we wouldn't. Yes. Well, I don't think you'd start otherwise. Your book and Rhonda Hetzel's book, Simple Home, um, and they sit on my bookshelf in my bedroom, which, you know, is sometimes stacked at the moment. I've got Bruni and I've got The Weekend and I've got the latest Christos Chalkis, um, mm-hmm. excuse me, book there. But you're to stay there together because I just look at them and I'm reminded, you know, hey, this is a possibility. Uh, conscious, mindful life is a possibility. And I need that reminder all the time. I'm still very much in the thick of um, living in the city and child rearing and about to head out on a tour again. And um, I'm best when I live slow. 
how do I manage my restlessness and my desire to live slow? You know, I'm not there yet, so I still need you to be writing more books and making more things. All right. <laughs> Please. <laughs> okay. I promise. All right. Good. <laughs> Good. Um, it is an interesting question that I'd love to, like, dig into another day is, like, how do you balance those, you know, the ambition and the slow and the – um, you know, that, that desire for change and for, you know, throwing everything up in the air sometimes and seeing what lands like and where it lands and, and slow. Like I'm very much that way myself. So it's a really interesting kind of tension to to kind of balance and also to not get caught up in what we think it should look like, you know, to live slower or more mindful or more intentional or whatever you want to call it and instead focus on what we want it to feel like. I do have one little trick and it is a bigger conversation, but I do have one trick and I sort of end the book with it in a way. Um, So I wanted to make sure that this was, you know, this was, I wanted it to be a story, but if people needed support the way that I needed support when I was 21, I wanted the back to be additional resources, you know, just to point people in the direction of this is where you can get further help. These are the things that helped me. And I wrote a letter with my friend, Dr. Charlotte Keating Mm -hmm. about, you know, how to find a psychologist who can be like your ticking clock in a thunderstorm. But I end the very end of the book is about pleasure. So we can't control the circumstances of our lives. We just cannot. You know, we can control the way we think about them, but we can't control the weather. And we can't even control the first thought, just the second one, the third one. For me, what always brings me back is, you know, I try and bring in a little of the pleasure, you know, the, the my mum's Dutch apple tart, the sitting around the campfire with a couple of songs. Again, the simple pleasures of life that are surrounded, surrounding family and surrounding food. And so I sort of give people a lead with a few of those things as well because it just it sounds so simple. But, you know, every time I see your book, I, I look at Julia from Ostro's um, Instagram feed, which yeah. is one of the beautiful ones. I just am reminded of this sense of if we can come back to simple pleasures, um, it's fun, it's sexy, it's awesome, it's connecting, it's nurturing, and it's what I'll be doing a lot of when I come home from this tour, I tell you what. That idea of kind of tilting into where you need to be um, and being okay with it, like you're going fast in order to then go slower, mm. you know, and that's that's okay. Mm. I think that, mm. that seeking pleasure in those tiny moments is, I mean, it's accessible to all of us, even if some days it doesn't feel like it. And, um, yeah, I love that that's and how the smells, the book, the yeah, yes. the, the, crush, the crush of a rose geranium leaf or, lavender, you know, whatever, yes. lavender, little fun things. They exactly. sound, they, they might sound boring, they would sound boring to my 18-year-old self, but now I just live for them. <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah, like, I feel like my whole mental health recovery hinged on a flower, like a, a tiny little Hardenbergia purple pea flower on my back fence. That's where it all started. So, um, Claire, thank you so, so, so much for, for today and for chatting with me. and for. We have um, to go and pick up our children from school do. now, don't we, you and I? We do. <laughs> the, the tilt continues. Oh, life goes on. It's been it such a pleasure and an absolute honour to be here with you. And, um, yeah, my sisters are going to be wrapped. Really appreciate all that you do. Brooke. Thank you so much. Thanks, Claire. Who is that? Hi, Puck Pass.